Hello. Goodbye. Hello, goodbye. Well, you are the one, the one who lies close to me. You are the one that only lies close to me. Good job. What's the, um, I is it love? From the For the first time, time I pressed my lips against yours. <laughs> you sound just like that. Yours. Wow, that's so creepy. Hey guys, this is Spooky <laughs> Show, and that was the uh, spookiest thing you'll hear today. That's how it sounds. I remember it from the like um, sixteen and pregnant fucking theme song. Oh my god! And then gosh. like the hand would hit on the back of the thing, except it would draw a heart. You know what I'm talking about? Um, actually, no, I didn't watch that show. Oh, is it love? Okay, okay, <laughs> okay no, this is Spooky Show. The spooky show. This is the spookiest show in the history of the universe ever. I ah. didn't do an intro last week. No intro. It was a kind of no intro kind yeah. of show. Um, I'm your host, Kate, and Harrison is here. Yeah. Trying not to move in a squeaky chair. I sure am. I'm planted firm. My root is in my foot. G- great. Great. So. The chair is not picking up, that is. I am so excited to talk about today's story. Kate, first what do you all, have for us? Well, first of all, it's a paranormal story. My favorite. Second of all, I did not know the story at all until I was on that DDP podcast where we talked about it. Oh, very cool. So you should check that out if you have not. Yeah, go and check it out. The story was just so creepy and so haunted. Like, there's so much creepy history here. Oh, so this one's kind of a spooky history, too. Yeah, we're actually going to do more about history of this we're doing the crescent hotel in eureka springs uh arkansas by the way oh so it's going to be like a lot of history because there's Uh a lot of weird history at this hotel and then at the end we'll go into like the hauntings and stuff all right sounds good because so much went down at this hotel it's insane so let's get into it first i'm going to read their description on their website right now okay you ready yes (laughs) Perched high above the Victorian village of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, is the 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa, a palatal structure and landmark hotel known widely in the Ozark Mountains as the symbol of hospitality for the state of Arkansas, an icon for Eureka Springs lodging. The full-service Crescent Hotel features 72 rooms with upscale suites and four luxury cottages. Bum. Wow, that sounds that place sounds fucking fancy. Relaxing, right? Nice. So when <laughs> the hotel was built in nineteen in uh, I put nineteen ninety six in eighteen eighty six, the advertisement in the paper was headlined as. I don't know. That was before I was born. I wasn't asked. I wasn't <laughs> asking you. I was kind of setting it up for us to start advertising again. Oh, okay. Was headlined as with the opening of the grandiose, grandiose Crescent Hotel, Eureka Springs entered a new and exciting era. Notables from afar are arriving in our fair city, and soon many others will follow. <laughs> so, the Crescent Hotel was built by the Eureka Springs Improvement Company. And the Frisco, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Every I town has its own improvement company. 
Are you sure you're not pronouncing this wrong and it's not the Croissant Hotel? No, it's yeah, Crescent. You do have a famous history on this. Shut show. <laughs> I left that in. I left that in. Oh, yeah? You have me saying Bureau. Oh, when we tried for five yeah. minutes to say Bureau. That and was so funny. And then we, we ended up with me saying, oh, yeah, da, da, me da, da, saying and bureau. you went Bureau, <laughs> or however you say it. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, you're saying it right here. Oh, okay. You were saying bureau. You were saying it like it was a Uh, fucking French detective. (laughs) Monsieur Bureau. (laughs) Okay. So it was built by Eureka Springs Improvement Company and the Frisco Railroad and was then known as America's Most Luxurious Hotel. Zoom, 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 zoom. When it first opened, it held a fancy gala. Oh. Oh. In attendance was James G. Blaine. Do you know who that is? No. He was the then Republican presidential nominee. Huh. And his wife, Laura. And well, then... History doesn't remember losers. You heard it here first. Then one of the men responsible for creating the Crescent Hotel was in, a sten- in attendance, and his name was Powell Clayton. So in 18- I do know him, though. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> in 1884, Powell Clayton and his associates, they chose the site of the Crescent Hotel. I will tell you why in a little bit, but it spans 27 acres at the north end of West Mountain and overlooks the valley. Oh, Isaac Taylor. I don't know. Death Valley? Yes. In California. Oh, no. The Valley in California. Okay. So, <laughs> this oh, is in Arkansas. The Valley. Listeners do not get No, in Arkansas, Arkansas. Arkansas is Arkansas. where the fucking Death Valley is right now. It's in California. I'm pretty sure it's in California. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so Isaac Taylor was... I sounds like such a fucking idiot on this episode, but let's keep going. Isaac Taylor was commissioned as the architect when construction began. And apparently this hotel was built with, like, insane efficiency for its time because, like, special wagons were constructed to transport the huge pieces of magnesium limestone. Whoa. Which is, like, what most of the hotel is made out of. And magnesium limestone is, like, apparently a big deal. I don't know if it still is. Maybe I should have looked into that, but... The stone was so special. Um, a group of specialists from Ireland. It was were, so special they had to get the specialists yeah, out here. They were brought in from Ireland to huh. assist and advise on the construction. But during construction, a man named Michael, an Irish stonemason, fell to his death outside of room 218 while he was working. So jot that down. Phone now. Consider it jotted. So, pretty much cursed from the start. Um, so, now, the reason why Clayton Powell chose this spot in the first place huh. is because Eureka Springs was known for something pretty crazy at the time. What? So, apparently, it held healing water in the Ozarks. Whoa. It was becoming well-known across the nation, so people from near and far were already swarming there. In from the hopes, near and far? Yes. In the hopes of curing their sicknesses and physical injuries and, like, easing their pains. Like, that's so funny. Um, yeah, you just kind of go take a quick soak. Yeah, so Clayton Powell thought they should take advantage of the fact that, like, so many people were going there anyway. Sure, money, baby. So they built the hotel. And the total cost to build the hotel was... Two hundred and ninety-four thousand dollars. Wow! Which is what a is lot that of current, current. That's money. a lot of money for that time. Uh, uh, we're currently getting our research team on that. Beans, hurry up! 
$100 in 1886 is equivalent in purchasing power to about almost $3,000 today. Dang, baby. So it's basically like like over a million dollars. Yeah. Okay. Pretty Pretty nice spot. So the hotel opened May 20th, 1886, and the hotel was seriously unmatched for its time. It was truly one of the best. People were flocking to it, and not just because it was beautiful, but because of the healing waters. Sure. But sadly, this was not going to last because after the turn of the century, people began to realize that the healing waters didn't really work. (laughs) Um, Surprise. And that the hotel, like, that's what the hotel and the city were known for. So, like, little by little, people just stopped going altogether. So, from 1908 to 1924, the building was used as the Crescent College Conservatory for young women. But it still operated as, like, a hotel in the summers. Fuck is a conservatory for young women? Is it where you, like, go learn to be, like, a young woman? Yes. That is so fucking weird. It is weird. So, I heard um, one legend that says a young girl... At the school, like, either committed suicide or got pushed out of a window, like, during Damn. her time there. Um, I can't find much of that online, but... Uh, what year is that again? 1908 to 1924, it was the school. Damn, nobody was writing any blogs about that. Any what? Any blogs about that? What do you mean, blogs? I'm just goofing. <laughs> okay. Carry on. So, after operating, like, in... As a school for 16 years, the revenues from tuition and the summer guest, they weren't high enough to maintain the cost of running the building. Sure. So the women's college closed. Then it's abandoned for the next six years, but then it briefly operated as a junior college from 1930 to 1934. But obviously that didn't work out either because in 1937, a man named Norman Baker arrived on the scene. Oh. And this man, I swear to God, he is the main cause for the hauntings of this hotel. Really? And you will see why. So to now tell. we're going to get in the history of Norman Baker. Um, so he was born November 27th, 1882 in Muscatine, Iowa. Is that how you say that? No clue. Okay. Sorry if that's not. Hey, to all of our friends out in Muscatine, send us a postcard. <laughs> yes, please. So... <laughs> He was the youngest of 10 children, and in 1898, at the age of 16, he quit high school to take a job as a machinist. So for a few years, he would travel from town to town working as a dye and tool maker wherever he could. Uh-huh. And then one night, apparently, Norman saw a mental suggestion magic show per- uh, performed by... What does by... that mean? Is that, I, is that like another word for like optical illusion? Yeah. I like think a so. mental suggestion and an optical illusion seem like the same yeah. expression, right? I think so. So it was by a performer named Professor Flint. And Norman, man, he was captivated by Flint. So he was like, I want to start a magic show of my own. I just imagine this, like, this illusionist carries around a board that's like, this is captivating. And it's like in quotes, and then it just says Norman at the bottom. <laughs> this is captivating, Norman. <laughs> So he tried, he tried to do this, start his own show, and failed a few times. But he finally Damn, got... Damn, this guy's a failed magician that is cursed. No, he, he makes it big. He finally oh, got his performance yeah. troupe off the ground in 1904. So the start of his show was a mind reader with the stage name Madame Pearl Tangley. And the show was actually a, a hit. And um, in 1909, though, Madame Tangley decided to quit the show, and a college girl named Teresa Pinder replaced her, and then she and Norman got married. And the magic show Mm -mm -mm. continued for another four years until the summer of 1914, 
And then Norman and his wife took like a break from the show back in Muscatine, Iowa. And they attended to go back on the road again and do it again. But then Norman had a little bit of a breakthrough because one day he was tinkering in his brother's machine shop and Norman came up with the idea for an invention. And it was a new kind of organ, not an organ in your body, like the instrument. No, like a musical organ. Yeah. It was called the Air Caliophone. And it was played with air rather than steam. So it was like more efficient. And he sold the first one for $500. Cool. Kind of the Elon Musk of organs. Yeah. Norman Baker, baby. He sold the first one for $500, which is just under like 10000 in today's money. And then he made two more and sold them immediately. So suddenly magic did not seem appealing to him anymore. Nay, nay, nay. So he quit marriage. He quit quit marriage. I mean, he did do that. Yeah, very soon. So come on. He quit magic altogether and uh, started to like. He lost the magic. He lost the magic. In the bedroom. I wasn't going to make it. (laughs) So. He started to manufacture his new invention, and he soon became very wealthy. By 1915, Norman, are you ready? Norman had quit magic, divorced his wife, and became a full-time manufacturer. Factuer. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, quit quit the magic. Quit it all all to become a car guy. So, at its height, his business pulled in $200,000 a year. And then in 1920, Norman wanted to have a little more fun, I guess. So he opened up an art correspondence school called the Tangley School. Even the Tangley School? Yeah, after Madame Tangley. So I was ah. like, I wonder if there's a little something, something. Oh, come um, on. Speculation. Mine is in the gutter today. Yeah, I don't know why. What's going on? So he opened this art school even after freely admitting he had, he had no artistic abilities himself. But he still netted over $75,000 in three years. Damn. By doing this. Smart businessman. <clears throat> so obviously this man had like a lot of ideas and he liked, he liked to say like he did this all as a civic duty. Like he, he, he dreamed to be like a human crusader. But you'll come to find out, um, and you can probably guess now, that he only really cared about money. And like yeah. exhibit A, opening an art school when he had no idea of anything about art. Like, this man you know nothing about. So in 1925, Norman went to the Muscatine Chamber of Commerce under the guise of civic duty and offered to build a radio station that would, quote, popularize popularize Muscatine, Iowa, throughout the world. And all he asked for in return was free electricity, water, and taxes. (laughs) That's actually pretty smart. And he got it. He got what he wanted. This actually worked. So he promised daily talks about Muscatine to publicize it in the hopes of, like, getting new industries and employers to this town. He promised, quote, it'll lift Muscatine from being a little burg lost in the Mississippi cornfields to a city the whole world knows about. So he got a license for a 500-watt station and chose the call letters KTNT. Okay. And he built his station on the highest hill in Muscatine. He went on air for the first time on Thanksgiving Day in 1925. Build, it sounds like a fucking Dr. Seuss book. On the highest of hills in all of Muscatine. Yeah. Like, so, <laughs> he, Dr. Seuss, Seuss asked, he plugged in a wazzle, a wimple, a woozle, and WNTNT and Toozle. <laughs> so, 
he immediately came out swinging on these radio broadcasts. Like he basically thought that there was an un- there was a natural unease and distrust the rural population had towards urban big businesses. Fair. Correct. Yeah, I put which is fair, but Correct. he would talk about this on his radio show and frame the argument as like little old KTNT versus the radio trust. And he like fought oh, for the that's freedom. That's actually kind of smart though. Like you want to get press, like like I don't know. Start controversy. Start controversy. Yeah, start a fight. So he fought for the freedom of airwaves. So Damn. his his broadcasts were basically the freedom of airwaves. He like really went hard against um, the American Medical Association, the Aluminum Trust, and Wall Street. And he would pitching. He was also pitching his many mail order products or whatever else he was selling and working on. Like he would just use his radio station to like boost himself and like talk shit. <laughs> pretty much. Sounds pretty much like everybody on Twitch. Yeah, sounds like a podcast. Yeah, it sounds um, like literally every podcast. <laughs> so. In 1928, Norman legally received a license to broadcast at 10,000 watts, so his signal could now reach, like, well over a million homes. So, you can probably guess what happened now. The radio station became a huge hit. Woo! Yeah. KTNT was one of the most prominent radio stations in the Midwest, so as it grew, Norman's attacks on his usual big targets became more yes. volatile and personal. Sure. Um, he would make baseless personal attacks on like prominent men he considered enemies and accuse them of everything from adultery to drunkenness on the air. And you are you're accused. You are hereby formally like, charged with drunkenness. What is your problem, Norman? So, um, what's this, your problem, Norman? This kind of made people turn against him, and he started getting a lot of complaints. So he was kind of like, okay, I'm going to simmer down on the radio business for a little bit and focus on something else. So. In 1929, he became aware of a man named Dr. Charles Ozias, who was operating a cancer sanatorium out of Kansas City. Okay. So Norman, um, he claimed that in the interest of public good, he wanted to investigate whether or not the Dr. Ozias cure worked, because this doctor claimed he had a cure for cancer. Okay. So over his radio station, he called for five I think I know how this one ends. (laughs) Yeah. I think I have an idea of how Yeah, this you could probably guess. So, over his radio station, he called for five volunteers to be treated in Kansas City, which he got, and then he sent them to Dr. Ozias for treatment for several months in the spring and summer of 1929. Then, Norman planned to publish an article in the December 1929 issue of his new magazine that he had, uh, TNT, that related his findings. So basically, he said that using aluminum products like cooking utensils caused cancer. He said that cancer was not curable through operations, radium, or x-ray. And that Dr. Norman Baker's new cure used none of these. That's right. Bum, bum. This, this uh, magician has a cure for cancer now. So he he basically went to... He's going to make that he did shit the Kansas disappear. City thing. He's going to pull it out of a fucking hat. <laughs> he went to Kansas City, was inspired by, like, this cure and kind of, like, made his own, pretty much. And Yeah, there's a lady who did this that was on, um, I watched a Dr. Phil clip of her. Do you remember that when I was watching, yeah. that, watching that lady? Mm-hmm. And, and the weird um, rabbit holes I fell down. If you couldn't already guess, 
it's not real. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't yeah, know yeah, if you yeah. know this. No, no. This is like also a very common scam. Like yeah. people do need to understand that like a lot of like any person who's like not really a doctor or like, you know, don't fucking do listen to that. That is not a political thing to say. That is a fucking health thing to say. Listen to the goddamn doctor. Yep. Don't don't fucking listen to weirdo magicians. So in this in this uh magazine he had it's always a fucking cure for cancer i know it used to be i'll make the rain come you know like that used to be the scam make the rain come like that used to be like people traveled town to town and would be like oh your town has a drought like i'm a rainmaker. like mm. you know like i can make the rain come like yeah yeah so in his magazine on the radio he said he would say sur- that surgeons were just cutters and that his cure was non-surgical and it's just a series of injections that would eat the cancer without harming the surrounding tissue. Um, so he got five test patients, too. But there was one problem. His test patients were starting to die. So the first one of his test patients passed on November 25th. But despite that, in the December TNT magazine he had, it hit the newsstands with the front page saying cancer is cured. Ding, 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 scam artist. Over, like, a picture of, like, smiling Norman. Three days after Christmas, the second patient died. The third and fourth died in January and February. So in March, Norman reprinted the December TNT issue detailing the miraculous recovery of his test patients. Meanwhile, they were all dying. We're dead at that point. They were all fucking dead. Yeah. So he uh, ended up opening the Baker Institute in Muscatine. Anyway, um, kind of goes back and forth on what exactly he was injecting in his patients, but most sources claim that it was a solution containing glycerin, carbolic acid, and alcohol, which was mixed with tea brewed from watermelon seed, brown corn silk, and clover leaves. I wish you that guys sounds could like that see Harrison's face. Shit. I'm just perplexed. <laughs> you were like... <laughs> I looked like a confused, like, no. uh, yeah, I don't even know. So Norman used KTNT to advertise his new hospital. And in the calendar year of 1930, Norman made over $444,000 from, can- from cancer sufferers alone. That is a fucking scam. If That's I like $4.8 million today. Ooh. So, of course, there was backlash from medical professionals. Though, sure. Like real medical professionals. So in April 1930, Morris Fishbein and the American Medical Association, they published a lot of articles in the Journal of the American Medical Association trying to get Norman out of the cancer business, basically claiming that it doesn't work. He's just money hungry. into the magic business. Yeah. (laughs) We need need to get this dynamic performer back on stage. Yeah, he needs to be on stage. So they basically were like, that cure doesn't work. He, Norman Baker is just money hungry. He's depriving cancer patients of a real chance to be cured with real medicine. So, of course, Norman was livid. And he filed a $500,000 lawsuit against AMA for defamation. And he also said that AMA sent three assa- assassins to KTNT to silence him. Damn. And he said a gunfight ensued and that he wounded one of the assassins and he was able to get away. So Norman filed a report with the police, but nothing came of it because of lack of evidence. Damn. <laughs> He's like, they sent men to kill me. <laughs> like, dude. 
You, dude, just disappear away. You're a fucking magician. Oh, it gets worse. So then, in an attempt to sway public opinion against the a- AMA, he held a public demonstration of the cure on May 12th. What do you mean? So, I don't Did, really... Is, he's suggesting this is an instant cure to cancer? I think That's people just so wanted to know that it, that it wasn't dangerous. Well, it's so, definitely dangerous. These people fucking die, like, immediately after Yeah, but taking... no one knows. True. Or they do know, and, like, I don't know. And they're being silenced. Yeah. So, around forty to 50,000 people came to watch the demonstration. Because he broadcasted it on his radio show. Damn. And... Of course, his days of being a magician, like, he knew how to, like, win over a crowd and manipulate them. So he, like, warmed them up with stories of miraculous healings from, like, former patients and who, like, one by one gave their accounts to the crowd. I don't know if they were just, like, hired to say that or what. He then drank a huge dose of his cure to show people it wasn't dangerous. Uh And then he did open air surgery on a 68 year old man Whoa. meaning he literally opened up his skull the skull of this man while he was still conscious because they usually do yeah. that while you're conscious right and right i don't know i think i think sometimes. so i think they have to yeah and he applied his cure to what he claimed was cancerous brain tissue so he won over the audience completely with this because like nothing bad happened when this was done so now he went full speed ahead against AMA and charged them with choosing profits over patients and told the crowd that MD really stood for m- more dough. <laughs> oh, that's actually a pretty good joke. Is that, yeah. Like, he's kind of like onto something. He's just going about it yeah. the completely wrong way. Yeah. You don't need to make up a, a cancer cure to, like, take on the American health system. No, you, system. you do not. So he told the crowd he wouldn't give up his fight and said that the sick people were all worth fighting for. (laughs) So this created even more business for the Baker Institute, and he was getting more and more patients. But new articles started to appear in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and they debunked the public demonstration saying that the patient he had used actually had a condition that caused the inflammation of his outer skull. So what the crowd saw wasn't the brain, but the med... medullary portion of the man's skull. So now, beginning in 1931, things were getting kind of bad for Norman over here. AMA lobbied the Federal Radio Commission to revoke Norman's radio license. Damn. And in May of 1931, they they did it. Like they refused to renew it and they forced him out of from the air. Damn. Norman's lawsuit against AMA was ruled against him, and his reputation started to go way downhill. Fucking cancel culture out of control. (laughs) I'm telling you, this cancel culture. And then an arrest warrant was issued against him for practicing medicine without a license. So he fled to Mexico and built a new 100,000-watt radio station that would be out of legal reach for the Federal Radio Commission. And he stayed in Mexico until 1937, broadcasting from his new station. And he even ran a small cancer hospital there. But then he grew a little restless. He returned to Muscatine, pled guilty, and served a one-day sentence for practicing medicine without a license. (laughs) Wow. He probably pled that he was, like, trying to help, like, in good faith. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So then he tried to bid for Iowa's Senate seat and lost, and he fled again. He was like, I'm embarrassed. i got to get out of here. I'm taking my ball, and I'm leaving. (laughs) 
So he moved to Arkansas. Sick of deals. He moved to Arkansas, where he bought a majestic hotel that had fallen on hard times. Bum, bum, brum, and bum, he bum, made bum, this bum, the new bum, location bum, bum, for Baker Hospital. Bum, bum, bum. He started doing the same exact thing again, pulling in $500,000 a year in Eureka Springs. For two years, he thrived there, taking many patients and giving them his cure, even though they were all dying. And um, even, like, there are, like, stories of, like, you know, some of the patient's siblings, like, trying to see their family member and them being, like, you can't see them and they were actually dead. And, like, Uh, Norman actually writing letters to patients' families as as the the patients. Like... Literally trying to hide the fact that he was, like, killing them with this cure. Yeah, I don't like that at all. Yeah. So he was still... Yeah, I don't like that at all. Yeah. So it was, like, pretty... Like, it was a dark place. It was... I'd say so. Yeah. I probably... I agree with that. While he was running it, it was very dark. And he was still a marked man by federal authorities. And they were, like, still investigating him. So in 1939, he was finally arrested. The AMA took to police seven letters placed in the U.S. mail advertising his services, and he was arrested and charged with using mail to defraud. He was found guilty on all counts during his trial in 1940, and he was released from jail on July 19, 1944, and he retired, retired to Florida and, like, didn't do anything and died yeah. in 1958. So I told you this story because, one, it's insane, and it's, like, just crazy that this hotel was... First, a school, a cancer hospital where, like, bad, bad shit was happening at. Yep. And two, most of the hauntings are said to be the patients from Norman's Cancer Institute at the hotel. That makes sense. So we'll... That would re- that really makes sense. Yeah. We'll get to that in just a moment. But in 1946, the hotel was purchased by four Chicago businessmen who began to, like, restore the hotel to, like, its old glory. But... And it was doing great until 1967 when um, a fire happened in the fourth floor and, like, a lot got destroyed. Literally, this hotel is cursed. Um, so over the next few years, it was undergoing, like, serious renovations to restore it. They're still trying to get it back to its old magical self. And it was all unsuccessful until 1997 when it was pur- purchased by Marty and Elise Ronick. And after $5 million in renovations, the Grand Hotel was fully restored to its original, like, cool place. Luxurious, magical, majestic hotel. And that's where it still stands today. So it's like, back to a hotel. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful hotel with many, many hauntings. So let's get into that. So the most cited apparition is that of a redhead irish stonemason of a redhead irish stonemason <laughs> who the staff has dubbed as michael 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 was the original mason who fell to his death while building the hotel ah in the area where he fell from is from room 218 one of my favorite numbers and i mentioned that earlier and that is said to be the most haunted room of the hotel Michael apparently is a mischievous spirit who likes to play tricks with the lights, the doors, and the TV, and can sometimes be heard pounding loudly on the walls. Kind of like boo. Others have witnessed kind of like boo hands coming out of the bathroom mirror, 
and heard cries of what sounded like a man falling in the ceiling. Other guests have been shaken during the night, and on one occasion, a guest ran screaming from the room saying they saw blood splattered all over the walls. Ooh. That's um, pretty fucking spooky. From the days when it was Norman's Cancer Institute, there's a lingering nurse spirit that is often seen pushing a gurney on the third floor. And she's only spotted after 11 p.m., which is the time they used to move like the dead bodies out of the cancer hospital. <laughs> she just vanishes when she reaches the end of the hallway. And people who don't see the spirit report like hearing the sounds of squeaks and rattles that sound like a gurney rolling down the hallway. Oh, man. And during the 1930s, this floor and area was used as the morgue. And even today still houses Dr. Norman Baker's old autopsy table and walk-in freezer. Um, the laundry area is also there where a hotel maintenance man once witnessed all of the washers and dryers just turning on by themselves in the middle of the night. And then there's also the ghost of Dr. Norman Baker himself. And he is usually seen in the old recreation room in the basement and at the foot of the first floor stairway. He's dressed in a purple shirt and white linen suit and looking somewhat confused. And like, he looks identical to old photos of him. Like people are like, that's him. And then there's another nurse that's seen from the hospital days named Theodora, and she's most seen by housekeepers in room 419, and Theodora usually introduces herself as a cancer patient and then quickly vanishes. Vanishes. Wow. Vanishes. Vanishes. <laughs> I don't know why I wanted no, what, to say. What? what? Vanishes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say vanishes. I did. <laughs> okay. In the lobby, usually... Uh, there, you can see a man dressed in formal Victorian clothing with a top hat. Top of the morning, top of the morning. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's usually at the bottom of the stairway or sitting at the bar. He has a mustache and a beard, and many have claimed to have like tried to talk with him, but he just sits quietly and never responds. In the hotel's crystal dining room, other Victorian dress ghosts appear, and many have... Huh have been seen in groups of like 1890s dancers sure. in like full dress attire, just like dancing around the Paul room, I guess. Doing in the, the latest, hours. doing the latest boogie. Other reports tell of a 19th century gentleman. Ooh, who a, certain, has, a gentleman of a certain uh, kind. Yeah. 19th century gentleman hmm. who is seen sitting at a table near the windows. And when you approach him, he says, I saw the most beautiful woman here. Oh, wait. Let me start over. I saw uh -huh. the most beautiful woman here last night, and I'm waiting for her to return. Wow. A former waitress what said that gent. she saw uh, one time a Victorian bride and groom in the dining room's huge mirror, and okay. the groom like made eye contact with her, and then okay. the couple just like faded away. Okay. So these spirits that hang out in the dining room are said to be very friendly, and on one occasion during Christmas time, the Christmas tree and all its packages were found mysteriously, mysteriously moved to the other side of the room, and all the chairs had also been moved to, like, circle or face the tree. Uh-huh. Another time, staff arrived in the morning to find the dining room in perfect order, except there were menus just scattered all over the room. Ah! The dining room's kitchen... Um, in the dining room's kitchen, the ghost of a small boy has been seen, like, skipping around, and sometimes pots and pans are said to, like, come flying off their hooks on their own. Wow. Another reported spirit is that of a young female who once attended the Crescent College, a conservatory for young women. 
And huh. it's that girl who was either pushed or fell from the balcony. Guests report hearing her screams as she falls. Other uh, ghosts have been sighted in room 202 and room 424, as well as a ghost waiter carrying a tray of butter in the hallways. <laughs> ghost waiter, he's got the butter. <laughs> so there are seriously so many ghost stories that involve these spirits. Like, people are writing their real-life accounts, like, all the time on the internet. There's too many to tell. I cannot begin to name them all. But that's the history and the paranormal history of the Crescent Hotel. I want to go. Very cool. Will you take me there? Sure. You also told me we would go to the Bell Witch House. Yeah, we can go to the Bell Witch House, whatever. <laughs> yum, thum, thum, thum. I feel like Harrison would be too scared. For sure, but if you want to go. Yeah, I want to stay in that hotel. Honeymoon? Arkansas? What do you think? You getting a little rock. We can, uh, we can bathe in the healing waters. Babe, I want to bathe <laughs> with you in the healing water. Okay. A weird ass ending to this episode. <laughs> I know. Weird episode. We did like a commercial, an advertisement for this like spooky hotel. Yeah, we had some fun. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, that's why the paranormal ones yeah, are my favorite because we can have some fun. Hey, come on. I mean, it is really sad about like Norman Baker and. All those poor people who literally... Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Who literally could have, like... It is really sad. Possibly have survived and, like, yeah. beat cancer if they had the right treatment. But instead, were, like, literally scammed by huh. this money-hungry man. He's out there, like, MD stands for more Dell. Like, speak for yourself. Speak for your freaking self. Norman Baker. Yeah, really crazy. Crazy hotel. Um... Yeah, look up some ghost stories on, like, Reddit and stuff. Um, I kind of wanted this to be more, like, history-focused, but, you know, because I love it. I love dark history, too. Right? I like it, too. It's nice. It's fun to know things. It is fun to know things. Although, I feel like when I do an episode, it goes, literally, I, like, remember it for, like, a week, and then it's gone. It's gone. Like, can you tell me anything about Richard Ramirez? No. And we didn't have no. They beat on him that. all up. They the Night Stalker. They beat his ass. Yes, which is the only important part you need to remember anyway, because it's freaking amazing. Okay, uh, look on my Instagram tomorrow because there might be a little giveaway. Dun, dun, dun. Damn, big Tuesday announcement. Yeah, I finally got everything together that I'm putting in it. So cool. Um, Mondays I usually post. The episode so on tuesday i'm going to post the giveaway so spooky show pod on instagram you're not going to want to miss that it's very easy to enter i promise um harrison please listen to my album what's uh it's called what's the, your my, band? the band is called baseball hat the album is called send this to your crush it's available everywhere you listen to music send this to your crush.com to find it where you listen to music listen to it and then send it to your crush and then after that you will have the best week of your entire life thank you for listening bye yes bye